Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. What I'd like you to do is turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, and uh, we're going to start in verse 18 in our continuation in Genesis, in our series in Genesis. And um, we're going to look at a negative example, and then next week we'll look at a positive example. Um, but the scriptures are contrasting two lineages. And what we want to take away from this is the message that Moses is sending through this is the influence of families upon generations. And uh, we want to talk about that. And as you know, uh, as of late in these last years, uh, last 10, 15 years, people's ancestries have become important to them. So there's all these companies now that will do the research for you and go back and look at your ancestors and where you came from. And there's even DNA tests that they can do now and tell you, you know, you have this heritage from your background. And people then become surprised of the different lineages that they have. And uh, interesting enough that everyone that does this kind of research always ends up being uh, related to someone famous for some reason. People will say, I did a, uh, my DNA and I'm related to Abraham Lincoln. And it's like, are you serious? How come everybody that does an ancestry test is related to someone famous? They're never, they're never related to some crook or some criminal or, you know, hey, you know, my lineage is son of Sam. You know, hey, I'm sorry about that, man. They never say that. It's always somebody that's lofty and, you know, I'm related to George Washington or something like that. But anyway, by the way, incidentally, uh, the Mormons are the ones who really are behind that. I hate to tell you the truth about that one. Uh, Ancestry.com was developed by Mormons. Do you know why? Because they baptize for the dead. And in Mormon theology, which is a cult, as you guys know, they will go back as far as they can and baptize themselves for dead relatives and it's like, you guys totally missed the boat. Each person has to make a decision for Christ. You can't go back and baptize someone, even though baptism doesn't save. They, they do that because baptism does save in their theology, which is a cult. But anyway, that's why they developed Ancestry.com for their cult to do that background work. So anyway, a lot of people take advantage of that, and that's fine. But what you want to realize about what you're going to study today, and it's a hard pill to swallow for all of us, is how influential your family is on you. And I'm talking about going back, not just your parents, but your grandparents and your great-grandparents and how influential they are on you, whether you know it or not. I've even talked to people that have adopted, and they have noticed that in the adoption that the child that they have adopted has different idiosyncrasies. And that that child will, they, you know, maybe act like the parents that they know, if they do know the birthing parents. And it's, it's kind of a weird thing, but genetically things are passed on. But what we want to talk about is the morality that's passed on, the dynamics from the family that influence the ethics, the morals, the behavior of the individuals. And what you start finding out, it, it's very impactful. It's more than what you think. Interesting that all of us you, you can look back in your own personal life and look at your family, and some of you had a great upbringing, and you reflect fondly on that, and you have a lot of nostalgia for that, and that's great. 
But even in that, the best situations, there's still things that need to be addressed a lot of times. There's things that, you know, no, there's no perfect parent and things were passed on that may not be suitable for your Christian walk. And you have to look into that. And again, we're not to blame anybody. We're not trying to say, you know, blame parents or anything like that. But what we're trying to do is find out where did some of my stuff come from? Why do I have certain idiosyncrasies about me that when I'm in a fight with my spouse, my spouse will say, you're acting just like your father or you're acting just like your mom. Boy, your mom really did a trip on you or whatever. Why does your spouse say those comments? Because they're right. They're typically right. You are starting to reflect behaviors that they have seen with their in-laws. That's a hard pill to swallow because a lot of people say, man, I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my mom. And if they're not careful, and what we understand what they mean by that. They don't want the negative traits. If they're not careful, they will demonstrate those same traits if it's not corrected or caught. Some of you, though, in here had a real difficult childhood, a very difficult childhood, and, and there wasn't a lot of good. There was a lot of bad stuff that was happening, and I get that. And you would be the first one to say, oh, yeah, I saw that. The temptation for anyone that went through a very traumatic childhood is, believe it or not, to act in total opposite of what they learned, which throws the pendulum the way over here, and sometimes that pendulum goes too far. So, you know, whatever they saw, you know, maybe they saw physical abuse, right? And they're like, I'm not doing that. So they'll swing the pendulum all the way on the other side and say, I refuse to spank. And they've swung the pendulum too far sometimes. And so they can have an opposite reaction to that. But nonetheless, what we want to point out is how influential our family dynamics are in getting passed on to us. Because here's where the rubber meets the road. Our job is to take those good things, those biblical things that we learned, and keep going with that. That's where the, the torch of faith is passed on. But to arrest and break the cycle of any bad behavior that we saw from our lineage and say, it ends with me. It's not getting passed on to me or my kids. And that's what we want to do. We want to become an Abraham and Sarah in our own family units and stop that negative stuff. Stop the sinful behaviors that we saw in our families. So again, approach this with balance, but understand, no parenting is perfect. Because what you're going to see today is a negative example, and it's a very important example. We have been studying Cain, and we already know the backstory on him, right? He killed his brother, refused to obey God. Wouldn't it be nice if what Cain did only stayed with him? But what you're going to see are seven generations where his junk is passed on. And guess what? Whatever Cain did in moderation, Lamech will do in excess. So it gets worse. It doesn't get better. It actually gets worse as those traits are passed on. And the later generations take it further. 
And that's what sets up Genesis 6, where the whole world becoming extremely sinful and then deals being cut with fallen angels. And we'll get into that when we get into Genesis 6. But here's the embryonic start of it. This is where humanity starts going really bad, is at this point. So let's refresh our mind just a little bit, some backstory, and then we'll get into verse 18, okay? So it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. This is after he killed his brother and refuses to obey and repent and dwelt in the land of Nod. Remember, we talked about Nod being the land of wandering. It's uh, basically the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia, on the east of Eden. So he refuses to have fellowship with God. He leaves and departs from God. He's going to start his own life. And Cain knew his wife and conceived and bore Enoch. Enoch means dedication or, or, or basically he's naming his kid in honor of his new life, his secular life away from God. And he built a city and he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And the idea is that the city now is commemorating what Cain is doing. Cain is supposed to be uh, a nomad at this point, but he decides to disobey again and decides to set roots in a city. And he's commemorating his rebellion with naming it after Enoch as his new life, and he refuses to obey his consequences and accept his consequences. So that sets in motion the whole thing. So he's already twisted off. Like we said, there's debate whether Cain was an unbeliever or he was a believer. If he is a believer, he's out of fellowship, and he will remain out of fellowship for the rest of his life. You'll lose all rewards and temporal blessings, and that can happen to believers, and we talked about that. Okay, so that sets in motion. He's going to live a life apart from God, a secular life, and how does that impact his kids? So verse 18 picks up the story. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad means city man, okay? So as you can see, man is gravitating more towards cities, and the reason is, in this sense, a city without God, without the foundations being built on God's principles and ethics, is a city that will become security for them other than God. That's what they do. They will build a city for security. This is where they will get their sense of protection from the world. And so that's, that kid, Irad, represents that they're finding security in other places other than God. It's worldly security. So then it says, And Irad begot Mehuyahel. I know it's a J, but it's pronounced with a Y. Mehu Yael. And interesting, the indication of his name means God makes me live or God gives life shows you they're actually believers in this line. See the, the last two letters, E-L, in that? It's a reference to Elohim. And then Mehu Yael begot Methushael. Two believers. Notice that two people were able to break the cycle, at least in their life. That indicates to you that you and I have a responsibility just like that. You can be in the line of Cain and at least two of his descendants break the cycle in their own personal lives. Okay, so that's good. That's good news that you can break the cycle. But then watch what happens. And Methushael begot Lamech. Lamech means warrior, conqueror. And here's where things go south. It's really bad. So... Lamech is going to be born in the line of Cain, but he's going to carry on his ancestors' traits at a greater level. Watch what he does. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. That's the door. That's the opening right there. What do you mean? 
Well, he's disobeying God, just like his ancestor did, Cain. Cain disobeys black and white commands. And now Lamech, an ancestor, is going to break another command. The command then that we saw in Genesis, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife in a monogamous relationship for the rest of their lives. That's how the family unit is supposed to be done. That's straight from God. But he decides, I'm going to take two. Now, you might say, well, why is he doing it? It's, it's not just disobedience. There's no doubt about that. It's for power. That's why he's taking two wives. In this period of time, there's no government. It's just a patriarchal system. And in a patriarchal system, the more kids you have, the more wealth and power you will have. So his way of seizing power and wealth by having multiple wives who can have multiple, uh, uh, multiple kids, right? So that's what he's doing. It's blatant rebellion, but it's to seize power. And that is the problem we see today. The world, the world system, the politicians are all about power. And if you can figure that out, you'll understand the motives politically. Do you really think Lamech loves two women, he's using them. He's using them for power. Just like our politicians, they will always fawn over them being moral and wanting to help people. But when it comes to it and you start investigating it, they really don't. It's all about power. And that's what you see politically. So nothing has changed. It's still happening today. But then he says... And the name of one, of one of the wives was Adda, or ornament. And the name of the second was Zila, or, which means twinkle or tingling. What somebody or rabbis typically say is that one wife was there to have children for him, and the other one was there for sexual pleasure. Again, we don't know. That's what the rabbis conjectured. But it is interesting that he's using them. He's not seeing them as people. He's using them as objects. And you think, well, would anyone get married because their spouse is an object? Of course they would. It happens all the time. Many times people are marrying because they want, they're on a perpetual search for their father or their mother. And they will marry someone in search of somebody search of a parent. And interesting enough, you say, well, is that love? Well, maybe. But maybe there's other motives going on sometimes. And that's what's going on with him. That's how the world operates, guys. The world doesn't operate on agape love. They can't love because they have to first be loved and experience that love from God. If you don't experience that love, you can't give that love out. The world doesn't have the ability to do agape love like you and I do. That's a God thing. So the way they use relationships, much like him, is he uses people. And they, the world uses people to get what they want. Let's look in verse 20, some more. And Adah bore Jabel, or Yabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. 
So this is the embryonic stage of tent dwellers like the Bedouin or the Arabs in, in that area and region. Let me show you some pictures. This is a, what, you know, modern day tents, but this is, this is ancient. This is what they were using back then. And they haven't changed really. The modern day Bedouin is very much the same. So when you see a modern day Bedouin, that's what you're talking about. A, twin, a tent dweller. And I got some other pictures of, of modern day Bedouins out there in the desert. And they live just like they did thousands of years ago, 4,000 years ago. You can see inside what they do. A couple more pictures and I'll show you. This is a modern day tent. They just become nomadic people and they're all through the Middle East. What's the point about this? Okay, last week I talked about the difference between a city dweller and a tent dweller in a good sense. But in this sense, because of the context we're dealing with Cain's lineage, this is a bad thing. What do you mean? In this sense, for him to be a tent dweller means he's not going to take responsibility for doing anything. He's going to live for himself. So tent dwellers like Bedouins are nomadic. They don't develop anything. They don't obey the dominion mandate to obey and harness the natural resources of the world to make a better society. Tent dwellers are extremely selfish in this sense because they won't put roots down. They're always moving around, not doing anything. So they do not develop sewer systems. They do not develop uh, societies. And so there's a negative connotation with this. Don't get this mixed up with tent dwelling with like Abraham. It's, this, is, this is a negative connotation here. And then they started having livestock, obviously. But then let's move to his brother. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. Interesting, it's Jabel and Jubal. It's kind, of, it's kind of the same sound in Hebrew. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. Now you think, well, what's the big deal about playing the harp and flute? Well, those items are neutral, but it's the context that's determining things. So whether it's tent dwelling or those who are inventing musical instruments, it's in a negative connotation. What you'll see is these people are, are highly skilled and major engineers and inventors. They're smart. They're super smart. This is not some Fred Flintstone, Barney Rubble types of individuals that your textbooks in high school and college try to portray the ancient peoples. The ancient peoples were extremely intelligent. So intelligent, unfortunately, that the world makes the mistake and says, well, they had aliens give them technology, and it was the aliens who gave them how to do all of this. It was not. They're super geniuses. We'll see in Genesis 6, they got more information from fallen angels. But nonetheless, they're working with 100% of their brain capacity. We're using three. 3% versus 100% is a big difference. So these guys' IQs were off the charts, man. So they, they invented all these things. Now, let me take you back in, in, in to grammar school. You remember in grammar school where you studied the ancient Sumerians? of the Fertile Crescent, and this is probably in fifth grade. And Mrs. McGillicuddy at your school taught you about the Sumerians. Believe it or not, the Sumerians are the people in this text. That's who they're talking about. This is the line of Cain and, and the people that come from Adam and Eve. Let me show you some pictures of what they invented. It is true they invented musical instruments, the harp and the flute. As the scriptures say, we have found instruments and even archaeological remains from the Sumerians... And what, lo and behold, they have musical instruments, just as the scripture says. They developed other things as well. Did you know that they developed the will? 
So this civilization that you're reading in the Bible is the one who developed the will. They developed writing. This is cuneiform, as you learned in fifth grade. By the way, cuneiform then, what was the ancient language that everyone was using? It's Hebrew. You know why? All the names are in Hebrew. So Moses is trying to tell you that the original language on planet Earth was Hebrew. The Hebrew then was communicated in cuneiform language, which is a pictograph language. So this was a very advanced civilization. They, they instantly had writing. And th that writing eventually turns into Hebraic later, letters later on. And derivatives of all the languages that we have now come from the ancient language of Hebrew, which is a alphanumeric language. It has pictures, and then it, 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 you use numbers with it and all that. So that was the original language, and they developed cuneiform. They developed jewelry. They even had jewelry. This is what they find in the Middle East is this is ancient jewelry from the Sumerians. Believe it or not, they had irrigation, sophisticated irrigations, just like this, and they would irrigate their, all their, their water from the Tigris and the Euphrates in that area in the Fertile Crescent. So these are not blockheads. They're very sophisticated. They invented the seed plow. This plow would not only plow, but it laid seed as they went and plowed. That's how sophisticated they were. They also developed a lunar calendar that we have ancient remains from. So they did mark the seasons, and they understood the, the lunar cycles. By the way, Israel was based on a lunar cycle. And they also developed sewers. This is an ancient sewer in that area of Samaria in Mesopotamia that is right where these people were. So I know it's a little bit of a fifth grade history lesson, but it's important to understand that don't disconnect the land of Sumer, which was right there in Mesopotamia, with where these people went. That's where Cain went. It's him. It's his people. And they developed the Mesopotamian area. Anyway, continue on. And as for Zila, she also bore Tubal-Cain. Notice he's named after his ancient father, his ancestor. And he is an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. So there was no Stone Age per se. When these people left Eden, they instantly went to metallurgy. And we still have rudimentary things we have found archaeologically. It's brass. And this was ancient metallurgy that they had. They weren't banging around with rocks like they want to portray in our textbooks. They had metal weapons. They had instruments and all kinds of different things. Interesting enough, this Tubal-Cain guy, again, context, he's making bronze and iron, but it's going to be used in a negative sense, just like the music will be used in a negative sense. Everything they invent is without God. Everything they invent is for their own purposes, not for God's glory. Understand that. It's just like if you understand in modern terms, the invention of the internet. By the way, Al Gore said he invented the internet. He didn't invent the internet. I don't know why people believe Al Gore invented the internet. He didn't. Our military did. Anyway, the invention of the internet, unbelievable, unbelievable invention, right? We all use it. Well, what's the problem with it? It's used for evil purposes many times. How about Facebook? How about Google? See, those are great inventions, but they're being used now for evil purposes. They're not to the glory of God. They're running algorithms and to prevent conservative and Christian news from going on those sites. 
They're blocking things, shadow banning. So what we're saying is if you can understand Google, Facebook, Twitter, and all these great inventions, but understand they're being used for evil purposes, then you'll understand the context here. What's wrong with music? Nothing, and, but if it's used against God, it's wrong. Like the majority of music today, even in the church. So this guy is making metallurgy, and, but he's, whether it's agriculture or weapons, but those weapons are in reaction to God, not in concert with him. Interesting enough, if you do some etymology with Tubal-Cain, they made gods out of these ancient figures. These people, because they were, uh, it was a patriarch society, once they got a little away from the person and they became a legend, these people actually became gods to the ancient peoples. Tubal-Cain is the progenitor of the Roman god Vulcan, because Vulcan was the one who made weapons and things of that nature. And so you'll see derivatives later on in ancient cultures, like in Greece or Rome, that they worship these demigods, but a lot of these demigods point back to people like Tubal-Cain or Cain himself or other people as well, or even the worship of Eve that you'll see even in Greece other under other names. Anyway, he starts doing this. And so what you have to see from, from an archaeological standpoint, this didn't happen 200, 300, 500,000 years ago. What we see from the archaeological records was there was a massive explosion of human population about 6,000 years ago, which is exactly the timing of this. Animals and humans start popping up about 6,000 years ago massively. Not millions of years ago, but 6,000 years ago. And it, it traces humans' ancestors back to Mesopotamia, not Africa like your evolutionary books teach in the schools and universities. It comes from the Fertile Crescent because that's what the Bible's telling where they went. Anyway, one more last thing before we get into some history. And it says, and his sister, uh, the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. There's not much said about her. We don't know anything about her other than she's named. She must have been an important figure, but that's all we know. So let's do some ancient civilization studies. Go back to fifth grade in high school. Should have learned this. And let's, let's understand a few things because I want to get into the religion of this a little bit. As you know, the Fertile Crescent is here. Israel is right here. We believe, according to the rabbi tradition, conjecture, the Garden of Eden was here. And so Cain goes this way. This was all not desert at the time. It was all fertile and, and beautiful and, and pristine at that point. So Cain takes his people here. So this is ancient Sumer. This is why in fifth grade you study the ancient Sumerian civilization, because this is where it all came from. I told you last week, they theorized that the first city that developed was Eridu right here. Obviously, Ur is right there where Abraham came from, and this is where humans flourished and thrived for thousands of years. Okay, let me show you some pictures real quick. Again, don't think of it as in desert. Think of it as lush vegetation. And the archaeological remains of what these people built is unbelievable. I mean, highly technical. Engineers and the things they built were incredible. You know, you can imagine their cities looking something of like this. This is an artist rendition of archaeological remains. And just remember that this was all not desert, but just uh, lush vegetation around their cities. Let's go to the next one. 
We have ancient archaeological remains of what the people looked like, and this is what they looked like. This is how they dressed. And you can see that beard that gets created. That beard stays with the Assyrians for a long, long time, but it was created right there in the way they, the men dressed. Typically, the men didn't have a shirt on. They had something of a tunic type of thing, and the women were dressed something of that nature. And how we know is because of archaeology. You dig it up, there it is. Artist renditions, something like this, what they looked like, their, their clothing, their worship, and their jewelry. Let's go to the next one. Here's what archaeological digs are working on. This is Eridu. This is what it looks like now. It looks bad. It looks like the moonscape. But based on archaeological remains, the pictures I showed you, that's what it probably looked like. Very advanced. Here's some of the remains of some of the gods and goddesses that they worshipped in their cities. And one of the things, as you notice, is they always built walls. The walls of ancient cities were built by Cain. And again, remember back why, why did he build cities? Because of security. And the first thing you build is a wall for security, right? And so it shows you that man instinctively without God will start protecting himself in every way possible for security. Now, interesting enough, even you bring it today, man without God will always look for security in other places, whether that's money, power, prestige, whatever it is. They'll look for ways to secure themselves, protect themselves. But it's seen in ancient city walls. This is, quite, again, what some of the cities looked like. This is the ziggurat. This is their worship center. And here's a worship center right there in Ur. This is what Abraham would have saw. And interesting enough, if you lived in this time period, you were required to go to worship Yahweh and have fellowship with him where the Garden of Eden was. That's where he met you. Now, you couldn't get into the temple garden, but that's where you met him at the beginning of the temple structure, and you did your sacrifices there. What these people did in the line of Cain got away from Yahweh and made their own worship centers. And if you notice, this is a classic ziggurat. It's seen with the Aztecs, the Mayans, all over the planet, even in China, different areas. That same shape was carried after the Tower of Babel. But this is the the temple structure they started making in opposition to what they should have been doing at the Garden of Eden. So man starts creating his own worship center. Again, this is all in rebellion to God. Let's go to the next one. One of the things you'll see in ancient Sumerian archaeology is they'll dig up figures that look like this. Okay? Now, most archaeologists will dismiss this and say these are mythical creatures. Do you think that Cain knew what cherubim looked like? Yes, he did. Because all you had to do at that point is go to the Garden of Eden, and it was guarded by two cherubim. The cherubim had, and then it was a flaming sword. The ancients knew what cherubim looked like. And so what you'll see in the ancient archaeology is they had, look at that, they had a running understanding of what cherubim looked like because that's what was on planet Earth at the time, protecting the Garden of Eden. And you'll see this all over. These winged humans, they look like humans, or these griffin types of animals that are half human, half you know, with wings on it, and they have a lion's body. That's just something they didn't make up. They actually saw these things. And there's other things that they worshipped. Human body, kind of like an eagle head. This might also include what happened in Genesis 6 when the, the hybrids were created, and we'll talk about that later. But I want to show you something very interesting. 
This is one of their gods. And I want you to take a good look at the god that they worshipped. What is that? But it's a human body. But look at the head. It's a snake. Now, they dug these things up in their temples, in the archaeology. What they find is this human body, but a, a reptilian head. I wonder where they got that idea from. It's a derivative of the snake in the garden. And you'll see in all the ancient religions, there's this snake fetish. You will see snakes everywhere, serpentine. Even the Aztecs and Mayans have a serpentine god that has feathers, wings. Why? Because they're working off of something they knew. Yes, it does get corrupted, but there's an element of truth there. Let me show you something very interesting as well. Notice in this picture, you will have winged creatures on each side. This represents the god, the sun god or whatever, the, main, the, the big top god. And there's these creatures on each side of this with wings guarding this. It's all over. Look at this next picture. This is a better relief. You see the winged creatures on each side guarding this. This is the top god right here behind it or above it. Keep going. You see this another. Look at this one. This one, same picture. You see the formation? But look at these creatures, the winged creatures with eagle heads. Does it remind you of the cherubim in Revelation with the eagle heads? But look at this. This is all over their artwork. And no one knows what it is. Take a guess. It's the tree of life. Now, they call this the Babylonian tree of life. But if we're working with the ancient text of, of Scripture, the Scripture is saying they all knew what the tree of life looked like. They knew what cherubim looked like. And the way they depicted the cherubim is very accurate, by the way, according to Scripture. These winged creatures that look half human, half God, or half angel, or whatever, you know, animal, or whatever. And notice this is a common feature in all of their work. And the tree always looks the same. Do you think Cain knew what the tree of life looked like? Of course he did. He saw it. The ancients saw it. They knew what the tree of life. So does this blow away your image of what the tree of life looked like? It was the size of a bush. Maybe. I mean, again, I'm conjecturing because I don't know. But archaeologically, let's go back to another picture. Look at the size of the tree in comparison to humans and then cherubim. Look at the size of it. It's the size of a bush. This blew my mind when I studied archaeology on this, that my image of the tree was this massive thing that they had to reach up. In fact, what the tree was is a bush about human height that there was right at eye level with them. Possibly. Interesting, isn't it? But the ancient records show you what they saw. And I think you have to take that as valid. There's some credibility to what they were saying. Interesting. So that's our history lesson. Now let's get to the meat of this, okay? And this is where it starts hurting. Verse 23. Then Lamech, this is the bad guy who married two guys, or two gals, okay? Not two guys. I know in our world they married two guys in all this polyamorous relationships. And he's not far from it. He's going to go there eventually. Uh, these people are going to go there, by the way, when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lamech said to his wife, now check this out. This is the first rap song in, the, in all of ancient civilization. It's a gangster rap, straight out, straight out of Samaria, not Compton, but straight out of Sumer, okay? 
believe it or not, you might as well have a gangster rap in this. Look at this. This is it's called the Song of the Sword. So check this out. He first states, Ada and Zila, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech. He's speaking to his wife. He's singing the song to them. Listen to my speech. He's going to throw down something right now in a song, right? He's going to throw it down. Yo. And, and so that's what he's doing, man. He's trying to get their attention. Okay, so then he goes into his lyrics. Check his lyrics out, man. It's first gangster rap. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Wow. Dude, you are out there. You might as well be from the West Coast or the New York rappers, you know, talking about, look, he's talking to his ladies and he's saying, hey, man, ladies, don't mess with me because I had a young guy that tried to mess with me and I killed him. I'll kill the fool who tries to mess with me. <laughs> Are you catching it? Word. <laughs> Dude, I, I was just like, I, when, I, when I read this the first time, I thought, that is a gangster. I, there's no way. Okay, what is he trying to do? This guy is beyond Cain. He said, if you think my dad was bad, you don't have any idea if you, who you're messing with with me, man. And he says, a young guy tried to mess with me. I killed him. And so he's bragging about murder. He's bragging about how tough he is. And notice that he goes beyond just equal retribution. If someone messed with him, he kills them for messing with him. And then he says, if my ancestor Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, forget it, man. It's 77-fold. They don't want to mess with me. He twists what God's doing. God was mercifully given a provision for Cain to protect him from being murdered. But this guy twists it and says, no, no, no. I'll go nuclear on you if you mess with me. I'll just go crazy. Don't mess with me, man. And when you see this, interesting enough, look at that, that last phrase, Lamech 77-fold. Let me take it to Matthew 18. And Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother? Guess what he was alluding to? That one. He was alluding to Lamech's boast that if you mess with me, I'll take revenge on you 70 times 7. And Jesus says, I want you to forgive 70 times 7. Isn't that amazing? He's linking Peter back to this text. Okay, so... Basically, this criminal now, he's a criminal, he's, he's venerating himself, and, and this is how bad it's got. So, like I told you, Cain was bad, but now his ancestors are worse. You don't want to mess with these. And what you'll see in the days of before Noah, that violence is the hallmark. Murder is the hallmark that's going on there. It is hardcore. It's a culture of death much like we're starting to see in America, a culture of death. You start killing babies, and you dehumanize babies, and you kill about 60 million, who's next after that? Who else are you going to dehumanize? Senior citizens, the mentally incapacitated. Who, do you, who else is next? When you start dehumanizing anybody and the government's behind it, you will start killing your own people. 
Do you know who's behind most murders in the world? Governments. It's governments that kill people. And we're getting into our government in the future, and the way things are shaping up, we're having politicians that are a culture of death, which is very scary. Okay, so now let's move into the application before we wrap things up. We've seen a bad example. These guys are, we, we saw a lot of guys inventing things for, for bad purposes, but we saw two people escape it out of the lineage. They became believers, and they broke the cycle for themselves. Okay. The point that Moses is trying to make here is this, that Cain's family is a microcosm of what's going on. It's a pattern that you'll see, even in our culture, of, of technical abilities, great abilities, but moral failures. We have people who have great IQs. They go to Harvard, and they go to MIT, and they go to Stanford, and they do amazing things, and they invent amazing things. But if they have no morals, what good is it? Because eventually what they invent will be used for evil, like Google being aligned right now with China, doing surveillance on China's people to make sure their social credits are in order. Do you not think that technology is going to be, not be used against you and I? It's coming because it's going to be used against you in an evil way because God's not behind the founders of Google or Facebook or whoever, whatever. Anyway, so God's given that picture, and he's trying to point this, that Cain cannot take the place of fallen Abel. It's going to have to come from another line, Seth. And Seth is going to keep the seed line going. We'll look at Seth next week. But the idea is that this line, because it's getting corrupted, cannot be used of God because they don't want to do anything with God. They're doing their own thing. And But here's the application. The effects of Cain's sin has now been passed on way more than what he thought. Way more. So let's, let's talk about that. I think I gave you a, 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 a paper as you walked in. Our usher should have given you this. And... I'm not going to go through all of it. I just want to show you. You can take time on your own to look at this. But I want to, I want to give you these, these things in application of how important it is. And in that thing, it should say multi-generational transfers. And basically what I, I showed you, I gave you basically the top 30 that you know, we see in counseling or whatnot. And uh, contrast that with the biblical patterns. Okay, here's what I want you to do. As you look at this list, I want you to look on that list and see if there's anything that was practiced in your family and ask yourself, if that was practiced in my family, was that passed on to me? And am I doing the same thing? Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. You may not like this. I don't like it because you have to do some introspection and say, am I doing what my father and mother did? I'm talking about the negative things. I'm talking about the positive things. So in my family was money king. If it was, are you doing that or is Jesus king? You see what I'm saying? Or in my family, did we have conflict avoidance? No one wanted to fight. We just wanted to have unity in our family, but no one was ever confronted. Actually, there's biblical confrontation and you have to practice that. How about emotional incest? Well, what's that? That's when the parents don't allow the kids to leave and cleave to their new spouse. 
and the parents and the in-laws keep hanging around and butting into the affairs of their own adult children. Did you see that? Don't repeat that. Emotional incest prevents leaving and cleaving. How about family secrets? Was there a family secret everybody knew about but no one wanted to talk about? Hmm. How about favoritism? Was favoritism practiced in your family? Was there a golden child in your family that could do no wrong? I don't care if they murdered somebody, they could do no wrong. And everyone else was a black sheep. Did they have that? Make sure it doesn't get passed on. How about seeing the parents as gods? Oh, that's a tough one. What do you mean? The adult children only do what their parents want them to do. That's crazy. Is that being passed on? Are you doing everything your mom and dad want you to do? I'm not talking about it in a biblical sense. I'm talking in a in, in worldly sense. Hmm. How about, did you see a pattern of infidelity in your family history? Do you know patterns of infidelity is passed on from generation to generation? One of the main issues of infidelity is because they saw it with their parents. They saw it with their grandparents. And it moves on generation after generation after generation. How about this idea of, of, we just don't talk about anything. Or we don't feel anything in my family. We're not allowed to feel anything. We weren't allowed to express our emotions. So I hold it all in. Did you play your role in the family unit growing up? Did you play your role that the parents wanted for you? Or did you play God's role of what he wanted for you? Did you grow up in an environment where everyone taught you to not trust anybody? Did you grow up in an environment where there was no boundaries whatsoever? No one knew any boundaries whatsoever? Well, there's godly boundaries, obviously. Did you grow up in a family of fear of security? Again, you have to be the investigator on this. You have to do the introspection. Because if you don't, guess what will happen? If you say, nah, my past didn't have anything to do with what I am today. You're fooling yourself. You have to understand that things get passed on. Let me give you some principles and then I want to show you a video real quick. Okay, wrap this up. If you assumed sinful patterns transferred to you, there's going to be some results. Result number one. It is the family structure, not the fam familial style, that, that passes on the sinful patterns. What do you mean by that? It's not what you presented to everybody. You might have, your family might have presented, hey, we have it all together, we put on our Sunday smile, and everything's great. No, that's family style. Family structure is how things actually work. Let me ask you this. In the family structure, was the woman in charge or was the man? Was your mom in charge or was your dad? Because if you repeat that pattern and you're upside down, it will explain why you're upside down now. Because you're just repeating the pattern. Result number two, the person trusts the familial structure and tries to replicate it in other relationships instead of trusting God's pattern, principles, rules, or laws. What I mean is they'll take their baggage with them and try to find a mate. And then they go on the search and they try to put their baggage with those new people. And if the baggage doesn't fit, they move on. They'll eventually find somebody that fits their baggage. I didn't think, this is a match made in heaven. This was an answer to prayer. This is what been, I've been waiting for all my life. God, thank you for delivering me this person. 
And really what the reality is, is their dysfunction matches his dysfunction. And it seems like a perfect match. But it's a perfect dysfunction because people are bringing baggage with them. Result number three, pretty heavy dose, but here's what happens. Coping mechanisms are created in order to deal with the transfers because these are not biblical things. It puts burdens on people. I have to march in line with mom and dad. If I don't do what mom and dad want me to do, I'm going to feel that pressure from them, and they're going to come over and say, why is this house so dirty? And they take their finger and they wrap it through the top of the, the, the mantle on the fireplace. And look how dusty. I can't believe you guys live like this. This house is filthy. You have a mother-in-law like that? I know you do. I know you do. Because they complain to me about you. And it's, I can't even deal with my mom coming over. She just inspects the whole house and she just pulls out the vacuum and starts vacuuming. If your mom or mother-in-law comes in the house and starts vacuuming, let them leave. Say, you got to leave, man. You can't be coming over here vacuuming. That's crazy. But you know why? The mom doing the dust test is saying, you guys are not marching in order because we have family law here. And family law under the Smith family... We have our houses immaculate. I don't care if you have five kids. Right? You know what I'm talking about. So how does a person cope with that? They start finding ways of coping mechanisms, all kinds of stuff, as you know. Rule number four, result number four, I should say. The person feels they have nothing to fall back on if they don't have these dysfunctional patterns of living. This is why they don't let them go. They don't know any other way. They're Christians, and they're trying to find, okay, what do I do? It's the biblical pattern you should be following. If they don't know the biblical pattern, they don't, they don't know what to go to, so they stay in the dysfunctional pattern because it's easier to navigate in hell because I know the road signs in hell, right? And so they stay in hell. But God is saying, no, 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 I have a new way of living. I want you to, to let go and come to my new system of dealing with life and do it my way. And that takes an incredible amount of faith to do the transfer because it feels so insecure to leave the system I grew up in to go to God's system. But guys, if you want true freedom, you have to do it. The longer you stay in the family structure and never break the cycle, you will end up like Lamech. You don't get better, you get worse. If your mom or your dad was a dust freak, you will be a dust freak 10 times over. It's just the way it is. And you will plague your kids to death about the dust. Let me show you a video. It's bigger than what you think. You think, do you really think this is just simply stuff that's taught? Watch this video. This will wake you up. What science has now learned, and is so fascinating, is that the choices we make in life will alter how our genes are expressed. This is big. People need to really pay, sit up and pay attention to this. Because science is now confirming scripture. And in lectures that I do, I often ask the audience, which is more scientifically accurate, the Bible or Charles Darwin? Well, guess what? It's the Bible. Darwin hypothesized that it was mutation over millions of years that caused his finches to have different beaks. Science has actually now proved it's epigenetic modification.
epigenetic, the, the instructions sitting above the genome telling the genes how to express themselves, which are changed based on experience. What we go through in life, the foods that we eat, the choices we make, well, the environment in which we live will actually alter the genes in, in telling which genes to turn on and which genes to turn off. What we know about genetics and addiction is that behaviors, sensations, input into the brain will use the DNA to change how the cell responds. And basically what happens is that genes are turned off or turned on based on what that response is. While the DNA doesn't change, the expression does. So the ability to be aware of environment, ability to respond may be genetically coded, but when we begin changing it, the term we use is epigenetically, when we change how that's expressed, we change the enzymes that are made, we change the response of the cell, and that change becomes a part of the genetic expression. doesn't happen generally with one exposure to pornography. It's the repetitive, volitional exposure to pornography um, that will cause this type of uh, gene expression to happen, such that you alter your pleasure circuits and you alter the inhibitory feedback, which would tell you not to do this. And that's epigenetic modification, changing your brain function. When we have kids, we not only give the sequence to our kids, we will pass along the instructions two and three generations down. And so if we become addicted to stuff, we can pass along to our kids gene constellations that make them more vulnerable to addictions. Conversely, if we get victories over stuff, we can actually pass on advantages. There's good animal evidence that that change in expression can be transmitted to the offspring. Those enzymes, those mechanisms, those genes that are turned off may also be turned off in the next generation. So we can pass along both positive things in our life and or negative depending on the choices we make in life. And so the Bible is actually more scientifically accurate than Charles Darwin because we do pass down to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren the experiences that we go through in life based on the epigenetic modifications. They will get not only our genes but the instructions on how those genes are expressed. Many adolescents will say things like, hey, it's my body, I can do what I want. Only if you're never going to have kids. If you're going to have kids, it's not only your body, it's your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids' body, too. So be careful what you do with it. Don't think of it as a, as a battle you're just fighting for yourself. You're fighting for the very lineage that God gave you. And if you will break this curse, then your sons and your daughters have a better shot. And your grandchildren have a better shot. My son's name is Jubilee because his dad took the courage to break the curses off of him. I want to invite you to do the very same thing for those you love. Did you hear what that said? If we get ourselves into addictions or any, any proclivity that we shouldn't be doing, it modifies our DNA and we pass it on to our kids. If, like for instance, if we are an alcoholic and we can't get a grip on that, you will pass that gene on. But what it does show, too, what they have found out 
is if the person who struggles with the addiction like alcohol fixes the addiction, the DNA actually repairs itself and passes the repair on. Wow. Now I get, I visit the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. What we do ends up getting passed on even in the DNA. If we have victory, we pass that on. If we fail, we pass that on too. Yikes. That's pretty scary. But it shows you the incredible power you have to change it and break the cycle. I pray you do. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.